0: Hello and welcome to the SRB
1: podcast. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. I'm all alone this time and probably will be for the foreseeable future. Margaret got a day job um, working with Ukrainian refugees here in Pittsburgh, and uh, Rusana is on maternity leave. So. Maybe they'll be back, maybe they won't, but you still have me. I'm here. And as you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, and I sure appreciate your support, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Well, this week's interview is with uh, Adrian Edgar, a historian of the Soviet Union, but primarily Central Asia, at UC Santa Barbara. And this is on a fascinating subject, and as far as I know, Adrian's book is the first book in English that deals specifically with interethnic marriage or mixed marriages in the Soviet Union. It's a real fascinating interview about, uh, you know, a topic we don't normally think about. And it really does place the issue of mixed marriages in the Soviet system and how they rub up against and complicate issues of nationality, race, and family. I hope you enjoy the interview. I sure enjoyed talking to Adrian. Adrian Edgar is a professor of history at UC Santa Barbara, specializing in the history of the Soviet Union, and especially the history of Central Asia. Her first book, Tribal Nation, The Making of Soviet Turkmenistan, was published by Princeton University Press. And her new book, Intermarriage and the Friendship of Peoples, Ethnic Mixing in Soviet Central Asia, was published by Cornell University Press. Here's Adrienne Edgar. So Adrian, it's nice to talk to you. I mean, I, I can't believe uh, that I spent so many years at UCLA and you, or you're or you at UC Santa Barbara and we actually never met personally, but it is finally nice to at least meet you over the internet um, to talk about this new book you have, which is called Intermarriage and the Friendship of Peoples, Ethnic Mixing in Soviet Central Asia. And I'm just, this is such a... Um, you I mean, clearly you're the first person to write about this in English, uh, that, that I know of. Uh, and I'm just curious, uh, what got you interested to, to write a whole book about interethnic marriage?
0: Yeah. Uh, thanks, uh, Sean, for having me. And, uh, I'm glad to meet you at least uh, over Zoom or over <laughs> over the internet, in, so quasi in person, uh, and to have this chance to chat with you about my book. Um, what got me interested in the topic? Well, I first became aware of the topic of intermarriage when I was working on my book about Turkmenistan, my first book, Tribal Nation, uh, The Making of Soviet Turkmenistan, because while I was reading... Um, Newspaper articles from the 1920s in Turkmenistan. I came across a number of articles, a rather heated debate, in fact, in the Turkmen language press uh, about ethnic intermarriage. And specifically, uh, Turkmen communists uh, were arguing about whether or not they should marry Russian women, whether this was a good thing because it would give them you know, better Russian language skills and better entree into upper communist circles, or whether it was a bad thing because it would undermine the Turkmen nation because their children would speak Russian instead of Turkmen. And at that time, you know, I wasn't writing about intermarriage at that time. I just kind of, I think I wrote a page about it in my book or a paragraph about this debate at some point when I talked about national elites in Turkmenistan. But I kind of filed that away as an interesting question. And I later noticed that the Uzbek language press had similar debates in it. So this was a question that was being debated throughout Central Asia. And actually the communist officials, the Russian communist officials in Moscow or those based in Tashkent, they didn't understand why the um you know why the central asians were bothering to talk about this you know why were they talking about intermarriage instead of collectivization and you know the cotton harvest and so forth so so there was a certain amount of incomprehension but of course they were talking about it because it had to do with national identity which they were very interested in forming uh you know at this time in the early soviet period and later what i discovered when i did after i published this book and I started casting about for my next book project, I did a little bit of reading in Soviet um, you know, journals and so forth, sociological ethnographic journals. And what I discovered was that the Soviet scholars, including those in Moscow and Russians and so forth, and Soviet officialdom became very interested in intermarriage uh, a bit later on, uh, not in the 20s, but say starting from you know, the 30s even. And then uh, they became very interested in intermarriage as a way of demonstrating you know, the Friendship of Peoples, which is uh, in the Soviet Union, which is where I got the title for my book, and as a way of showing that Soviet nationalities were kind of one big happy family and all going to merge together ultimately um, into, a, you know, communist Soviet people. So, uh, so I got interested. That's kind of how I got interested. I first saw it as an issue in Turkmenistan, and then I later saw it as a big issue, you know, written about a lot in the uh, Soviet scholarly and popular journals, especially in the, you know, late Soviet period um 60s 70s 80s but it was also talked about in you know starting from the 30s yeah
1: you know it as as someone who's writing from the united states where you know interracial marriage has such a a long and horrible history for the most you know vast majority of the history of of interracial marriage in the united states is just awful um and approaching a subject like this, right? you're coming from a different cultural historical context, writing about a different historical and cultural context. How did you you know did did you think about like how to I don't know how to put it really like put aside the the baggage that comes from looking at this topic from America?
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I should say, there. Uh, before going on, I should also say that there was yet another reason why I was interested in this topic, in addition to the one I mentioned, which is that I myself am in a mixed marriage. And one of those mixed marriages that is so fraught with, you know, my husband is Black, uh, and uh, African. he's Nigerian, half Nigerian, half African-American. Uh, our son is, is, is also African-American and, uh, you know, half my family. And so I guess I could say that I have a personal familiarity with this topic and a person kind of a personal awareness of, of this and have thought a lot about it and read a lot about it in the U S context, even though that's not my, it's not my field. It's just kind of a personal interest of mine. So, uh, so I guess I would say that, I guess this means, you know, I do have a lot of baggage. I had a lot of ideas, um, you know, and thoughts about, about mixed marriages, especially interracial marriages going into this project. But, I, you know, I was, I guess I would say I was determined not to kind of apply, um, you know, I, I wanted to put the Soviet case of interethnic marriages, mixed marriages, in a kind of global context. I wanted to be able to understand this as part of a, you know, a globe. There's, glo- there's a lot of literature globally on mixed marriage, not just in the US, North America, but also in, you know, European colonial empires and in Australia and Canada and, you know, everywhere. So uh, uh, so I everywhere really, Latin America, everywhere except <laughs> really Eurasia and the Soviet Union. There wasn't, as you pointed out, there wasn't really any English language or not much English language literature on this. And so, uh, so I, I I wanted to approach it, you know, being aware of the situation elsewhere, being aware of all this other literature, but I still wanted to approach it with kind of a, with fresh eyes, and 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 really look at what was different about the way the Soviet Union approached intermarriage, and and to see if the experiences of, you know, Soviet people in mixed couples and mixed families, you know, were were uh, if they were different from from those elsewhere, and if so,
1: how now there's a and you start with this and with the paradox in soviet identity and and that is you point out right in the beginning you asked this question how could soviet citizens have been both internationalist and obsessed with ethnically defined nationality can you talk about why this this appears as a paradox
0: i'm not the first person to point out this paradox of course you know a lot of other people um i was interested in investigating it from the point of view of mixed marriage, but a lot of other people, Ron Suni, Terry Martin, and others have pointed, pointed out this, this seeming paradox or this paradox, which, well, I guess to me, a paradox is simply, you know, a it's kind of a self-contradictory proposition, a seemingly, some, often with an element of absurdity. When you look on the face of it, uh, it seems strange that this, you know, internationalist country that is constantly talking about the friendship of peoples talks so much about nationality, specific nationalities, is so obsessed with specific nationalities, what ethnic stereotyping and so forth. And so, um, and I guess one of the things that I found through examining this paradox is that, well... uh, it's not really a contradiction, I guess. It's, it's, it's not really as contradictory. It makes sense when you look at it, you know, because they're, because the internationalism and the obsession with nationality are really two sides of the same coin. So it's not quite as absurd or as contradictory as I, I, I kind of pose this as this paradox or contradiction at the beginning of the introduction. But then um, as I go through the book, I kind of try to show how these two things work together, the internationalism and the friendship of peoples on one hand. And on the other hand, uh, this, uh, you know, very strong valuing, um, of, uh, and, and significance attached to, uh, nationality, um, in the, in the Soviet Union. So, uh, so I guess kind of teasing apart the relationship between these two things is part of what I'm trying to, trying to do in the book.
1: I'm curious as to, you know, again, here I'm speaking myself as an American who comes from, you know, this history of, of the controversies of interracial marriage and, um, you know, you point out in the beginning, say, in imperial Russia, in the United empire, mixed marriage was mostly considered confessional. Um, and and that, that's the case in, in most societies where religion plays such a, a large role with with national identity and, and personal identity. But in the Soviet case, what, what counts as a mixed marriage?
0: In the Soviet case, um, the Soviets defined mixed marriage in terms of nationality. And they had a very specific idea of nationality. Nationality was an official category. Uh, Everyone had a nationality that was listed in their internal identity document, their internal passport. And the nationalities were all kind of officially Defined and named through a you know process of categorization, classification, and census making, you know in the early Soviet period, you couldn't just pick some random nationality for your passport. You had to pick one of the Soviet nationalities, uh, and so the Soviet state defined intermarriage, and Soviet scholars and so forth defined intermarriage uh, as being a marriage, be- a heterosexual marriage between. Uh, two people who have different nationalities in their passports, and in my book, I use that definition not because I think it's the only definition of nationality, but uh, oh, sorry, of, of of mixed marriage, but because uh, because that's the definition that people used in the Soviet Union, um, and because it's the because this is what the Soviet state was um, officially welcoming and promoting. They celebrated, promoted, and welcomed um, mixed marriage between. Um, uh, different nationalities. Now, of course, there were all kinds of other possible marriages in the Soviet Union that people might have considered mixed. People still had religious confession in the Soviet Union, even though it was not an official category. So um, a mixed religious marriage might have still had significance for people. And in fact, many of the mixed marriages that I look at, mixed nationality or ethnicity marriages are also mi- uh, confessionally mixed marriages. Um, there were, in Central Asia, marriages between different descent groups or lineages or what we might call tribes were often also considered mixed marriages. Uh, the Turkmen, for example, um, each, you know, large uh, uh, descent group, tribe, the tekes, the yomuts, they uh, considered themselves, you know, it was it was uh, considered to be, it was thought to be better to avoid, you know, Intertribal marriages. And there were many other categories like that. You know, for example, there were sacred lineages in Central Asia who believed that they should not intermarry with other groups. Um, so there, so there are all kinds of different ways that individuals um, and families might have understood mixed marriage. But what I'm really talking about in this book mainly is this official Soviet definition, which over time came to be the definition that was also used by most Soviet people. You know, they came to understand that when you talked about mixed marriage, or you know, uh, uh, you know, or you know, ethnically mixed marriage, what people generally meant was marriage between two different nationalities.
1: I, I think it's one, uh, you know, in reading your book and, and learning about this, um, the fact that the Soviet Union—I mean, it makes sense that the Soviet Union promoted this because of its nationality policy, friendship of peoples, as it is in your title. But at the same time, it's kind of—it seems to be kind of an outlier. Um you know, in these discussions in the twenties and thirties about mixed marriage or promoting of mixed marriage, how did this how did they this compare to other places around the world in this international context?
0: Yeah, so well, I would say in the twenties and thirties, there wasn't yet that that much discussion of actually promoting or welcoming mixed marriage, although there were some discussions in specialized anthropological journals about how ethnic mixing was good because it led to you know genetic diversity and so forth. I mean, there, you know, there were some kind of specialized discussions, but it was really in the later Soviet period, I would say in the Brezhnev era um, that, uh, that there really came to be this kind of overwhelmingly (laughs) enthusiastic celebration of, of, of mixed marriage that, you know, every, book on nationality policy, every journal dealing with nationalities, you know, movies, uh, you know, literary works, you you saw um, mixed marriage kind of being praised in all of these different places. And I would say, yes, uh, that was one of the things that first made me want to explore the Soviet case. Why was the Soviet case so different from the U.S. case, where, as you know, until the 1960s, um, uh, interracial marriage was banned in many states. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course there were other places as well where ethnic and racial mixing was banned, not just Nazi Germany, but, you know, South Africa. And, you know, uh, so, so, uh, so I did look on it as an outlier at first, but when I did a little more investigation, I discovered that actually there have been various times and places where, um, ethnic and racial mixing have been encouraged. Um, and, uh, Latin America has sort of, a almost a cult of, Of mixedness, where they're very proud of kind of the many many Latin American Spanish-speaking countries are proud of you know their kind of mixed populations. Um, There were uh, in Australia, there was a policy of promoting uh, intermarriage between white Australians and indigenous Australians. Uh, and of course, these policies are not always, you know, they often have nefarious purposes, you know, <laughs> in the, in the case of Australia, for example, uh, uh, I have read that, you know, I'm not an expert on Australia, but I have read that, you know, that the idea was that if you intermarried with Australian, the indigenous population over several generations, you would basically whiten them out of existence. So, uh, so, so, the, so it's not always, uh, you know, it's, not always a kind of kumbaya, let's all be <laughs> have, have brotherhood of peoples that is uh, driving this. But the Soviet Union was not the only place in the world that you know looked favorably on mixed marriage. Although I would say, um, you know, probably the largest state that really actively you know celebrated it uh, in the twentieth century.
1: In, in the sixties and also into the seventies, I mean, of course, you have. I'm curious about did they use their promotion of inter-ethnic marriage as part of their international propaganda? Because this discussion, this promotion you're talking about, in the, say, in the 60s, is also occurring at the time of decolonization and, of course, the civil rights movement in the United States. And it's the Cold War after all. Did they use it as a international to promote themselves internationally to um, other nations?
0: Yes, they did. So just as they you know used their um, you know policy of equality of nations and races you know and the lack of segregation uh, and discrimination, official discrimination, shall we say uh, um, as you know they contrasted themselves especially with their main Cold War rival, the United States. but um, saying that intermarriage uh, that they favored intermarriage was definitely a part of this they uh, there were I read a number of articles where you know from this period um, especially you know, Prior to the U.S. Supreme Court striking down these laws, you know, uh, against uh, which I believe happened in 1967. Uh, prior to that, um, the Soviets really, you know, u- used this as a cudgel <laughs> quite a bit, pointing out that you know we we have all these happy mixed families, and in the United States, these families are not even allowed to get married. So yes. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, we know that it's not so easy to say that they were all happy in mixed marriages because uh, you point out there's many different types of challenges and, and tensions within this. So, you know, a couple that want that get together from different backgrounds, um, you know, what kind of what kind of challenges do they, do they face and, and also what kind of challenges do their potential children face in the Soviet Union?
0: This was one of the things that was interesting to me, and uh, part of the reason I wanted to look at this um, problem in Central Asia is because there are so many different ethnic groups in Central Asia with different languages, cultures, you know, uh, um, ethnic backgrounds, religions, and uh, there just was so much diversity there that I thought it would be very interesting to to see some of these marriages where you really have people from very different backgrounds getting married, how, how, how hard or how easy was it, you know, to overcome these, these differences in language, religion, customs, and so forth. And so uh, what I found was, um, well, it's, it's, it's really the whole book (laughs) that tells about what I found. So let me see if I can somehow, somehow uh, sum it up for you. I guess what I would say is that uh, in some ways, Um, intermarriage was easier for people in the Soviet Union because it was officially welcomed. You know, obviously in the United States, if uh, people tried to marry interracially and it was against the law, but even, even once it was legal in the United States, the overwhelming majority of Americans, for example, in the 60s, Uh, were, uh, the overwhelming majority of white Americans were opposed to interracial marriages. Um, In the Soviet Union, because of the officially friendly policy, uh, and, uh, you know, there was much less kind of general or, you know, hypothetical objection to these marriages. Uh, People felt that if they married interethnically, you know, they weren't going to be ostracized by society. They weren't going to have problems finding a place to live. You know, all the things that might have might happen for to a, a mixed couple in, you know, a very racial racially discriminatory society like the United States or South Africa. Uh, but <laughs> just a lot of people welcomed Mixed marriage, you know, when in theory, but when their own child wanted to do it, they didn't welcome it so much. <laughs> you know, so that that's one thing. People, uh, young couples wanting to get married often faced opposition from their families, um, not always, but but often. Um, and uh, that was that was the first thing which they had to overcome in order to you know get married and then establish a life together. Um, and then they they faced a certain problems um, in their relationships with families that were mainly due to cultural differences. For example, if you have, you know, if if someone, if a Russian woman marries into a Central Asian family, um, uh, she's expected to adopt certain kinds of customs and ways of relating to her in-laws that might be unfamiliar to her. Uh, and, uh, and you know, that not everyone can do that easily. <laughs> not everyone is that culturally adaptable or open and so forth. So, so there were sometimes problems getting along with families. Um, there were, uh, challenges, um, just, uh, just, uh, uh, sometimes deciding, you know, which language to speak, uh, what kind of names to give children—you know, issues of that sort. Although I would say that these these were generally areas where mixed couples simply worked things out. You know, they they, they found ways of you know of of of, of solving these issues. Um, generally speaking for, to have a successful marriage, mixed marriage, you pretty much had to find a way of getting along with the in-laws because people in this region are very close to their families. And so, uh, the, the ones who didn't manage to get along with their in-laws, uh, you know, those are the ones that probably the marriages that probably didn't last. So, so those, so, so some of these issues, uh, there were sometimes differing views of gender roles. Um, you know, so, uh, uh, and.
1: Did it matter if it was, uh. A man, uh, say, a Russian man marrying a non-Russian, as opposed to say, a non-Russian man marrying a Russian woman.
0: It it did matter, but in fact, uh, Central Asian women um, rarely, very rarely, married um, non-Central Asian men in the Soviet period. These the numbers were very, very small. It was almost it was almost overwhelmingly Central Asian men marrying Russian, Ukrainian, German, whatever you know, other non-central asian women both both for both for religious reasons and also because central asian women tended young women tended to be much more under the you know control of their families uh much less likely to be in a position to go out and meet you know, random men. <laughs> so, you know, so, uh, so for various cultural uh, reasons, uh, it was um, much less light. Those those marriages were much less common. Uh, but yes, it did matter. I do describe some marriages of Central Asian women to to uh, Russian or Ukrainian, and so forth, uh, uh, other uh, non Central Asian men in the book, and it, it did make it did make a difference. But there were these just these you know cultural. Um, uh, differences that needed to be overcome. And then uh, you also asked about the children. Uh, I would say in some ways, the children of mixed marriages faced uh, uh, particularly kind of poignant difficulties because the Soviet system, while welcoming intermarriage, uh, and here you have this, again, this paradox between internationalism and, and nationality that, I, that we talked about at the beginning, um, the children of mixed marriages were expected to have a single nationality. So they had to pick one. <laughs> when they were 16 years old, they went to, just like kids here go to the driver DMV and get their driver's license, you know, ki- kids in the Soviet Union had to go to the passport office and get their passport. And when they did this, they were asked, so what's your nationality? Now, of course, for most kids, both your parents are Russian, you say, I'm Russian. But if you go there and you have one Kazakh parent and one Russian, or even even what was also very common, you have a dad who's half Tatar, half Russian, and a mom who's half Ukrainian, half Armenian, and then they say, "What's your what's your nationality for your passport?" A lot of these kids had uh, difficulties, so they would, you know, they would declare one nationality, but then they would feel guilty, or they would feel that they didn't actually they had declared a nationality. Uh, let's say a kid has a you know a Tajik father and a Russian mother, but has grown up speaking mostly Russian. They feel, uh, kids like that often felt they needed to declare their nationality to be Tajik, but then they felt guilty because they didn't speak Tajik. They felt somehow they weren't really culturally Tajik and so forth. So it caused kind of internal uh, uh, conflict, I guess, for, for some of these kids. And sometimes just social conflict as well, because if you looked a certain way, you know, um, you know, if you were blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and your passport said that you were Tajik, or you know something else, or if you had a you know Azerbaijani name and your passport said that you were Ukrainian, this would just cause lots of questions throughout your life. So, uh, so these were the kinds of things that uh, you know children of mixed marriage faced. However, it's very important to say, and, and and I should say these these are issues that children of mixed marriage elsewhere face as well. You know, if you read about you know, kids who are, you know, mixed uh, in the United States, um, you, will, you will find, you know, some, some similar, you know, identity issues, although uh, they don't necessarily have to declare one official race or, or ethnicity, but nevertheless, people, you know, have, you know, do suffer from internal conflicts of various kinds, depending on, um, you know, if, if, they're, if, they're, if their subjective identity doesn't match up with the way they're seen by the world outside them, let's say.
1: Was there ever any discussion amongst Soviet officials or social sciences or any about creating a, a, a category for mixed people? Or like I say, like a hyphenated something or something to accommodate this, this kind of, com- you know, it's strange because on the one hand they're promoting it, right? But on the other hand, they're like, okay, you need to, there's this primordialism, which we'll get to. But uh, yeah, was there ever any discussion of having a category that fit mixed people?
0: Yes there was a discussion not hyphenation there was a discussion and that category was called soviet so there were a lot of, there were a lot of people who said why do we have to have a nationality why can't we just all be soviet you know and uh, uh, uh what you know why are we sticking with this archaic you know, backwards uh, way of of dividing people when in fact we're all Soviet. And uh, uh, if it's interesting to compare with, say, Yugoslavia, which also had an ethnically mixed population, and they did create a Yugoslav category. So when you uh, you know registered for the census in Yugoslavia, you could declare yourself to be Yugoslav instead of Serb or Croat or you know Slovenian or whatever. So um, now, interestingly, not that many people used the Yugoslav category, and those who did were often either children of mixed marriage or kind of dedicated communists who believed in internationalism. So probably the same thing would have happened in the Soviet Union. If they had had a Soviet category, probably not that many people would have taken it. But many of the mixed people I interviewed said they wished there had been a Soviet category. They felt more Soviet. They didn't really feel Russian or Azerbaijani or Uzbek or Ukrainian. They felt Soviet. So, uh, So yes, that would have been the category. And interestingly, the Soviets never decided to use it as an official identity category within the country. Um, I don't know if you know the work of Anna Whittington. She's written a dissertation about kind of the Soviet people and Soviet identity. And she's found uh, tr- troves of letters written to the Soviet authorities in which people are, say- are saying, "Are could we please just have a Soviet identity and get rid of all these nationalities? So uh, so th- this was uh, something that people thought about, but um, ultimately the Soviet state did not do anything about it.
1: Do you have an answer as to why they didn't?
0: Um. You know, I think no, I don't really have an answer, but I'm just speculating. But, but I, I think that nationality had become just uh, such a you know critical um, category for people for I you know category for classifying people and also for people's self understanding, self conceptualization. After uh, you know, class identity was sort of ditched. You know, <laughs> uh, under Stalin, nationality was what remained, um, and uh, there wasn't religious identity really anymore. So, I think that people just kind of clung to this, um, and uh, I think that I think I suspect that the uh, Soviet authorities knew that if they tried to get rid of it, actually there would have been a lot of resistance. People would have people in non-Russian republics would have felt that this was a way of Russifying them. Getting rid of their own identities, um, and uh, so, so my guess is that it just seemed uh, kind of like rocking the boat too much, you know, too disruptive, and 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 even potentially, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, would have potentially um, aroused some opposition. And I think, for example, you can see uh, you can see that people are uh, still cling to this these identities from the fact that in in Kazakhstan, for example. People still have nationality in their passport. The Soviet Union is not there anymore, but they've stuck with this system.
1: In the, in the 60s and into the 70s in the Soviet Union, are privileges still attached to ethnic, like being an ethnic minority? Uh,
0: yes. I mean, uh, yes, there are still some, some privileges attached in the sense that, um, uh, you know, kids from ethnic, from from non-Russian republics, uh there were certain numbers that would be sent to study in moscow for example a kind of you know affirmative action uh certainly uh the you know the communist parties um uh, and you know universities within these republics and you know jobs and uh communist party positions and so forth um you know uh, initially the soviets wanted to kind of promote Uh, local people into these positions. Uh, Later on, these, you know, these republics really kind of developed their own Networks and you know, uh, uh, you know, social networks, so that you then had an advantage being from the local nationality, just because you knew people and your 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 pals, you know, we're gonna were gonna your former classmates, whatever, we're gonna help you get a job. But yes, there were adva- there were advantages to belonging to the titular nationality in each republic, and that's one especially, and that's one thing I found when people would say which nationality they chose when they were sixteen and selected their passport. Very often, their parents would tell them, "You need to pick Kazakh if you're." In the kazakh republic you need to pick tajik if you're in the tajik republic because that's the way you will have the most advantages within your own republic
1: did, I, I know you didn't focus on this but what about for jews
0: i didn't focus on this very much because i simply did not find you know intermarriage of jews is a big issue in russia ukraine other republics but in central asia in the period i was looking at um well even if it was an issue in the soviet era uh I I did not find anyone to interview when I went there in the post Soviet era. I simply, uh, you know, all, you know, most of the Jewish populations uh, of central of the Central Asian republics had left, and I just I ended up not focusing on it, not because it wasn't an issue, but just because I didn't have the you know the data, the evidence. Uh, um, so uh, I, I do know that among the people who were asking for a Soviet identity. Um, you know, uh, um, you know, I mentioned Anna Whittington's, uh, dissertation and her work, uh, in addition to there being a lot of people from mixed marriages, there were also, you know, uh, also there were a, a number of, of Jews who thought that a Soviet identity, you know, rather than, uh, you know, having your, ha- having, having your particular, um, you know, nationality in the passport would have been a, a good idea. So, um, but yes, it's not something that I ended up being able to focus on.
1: Hey, SRB listeners, Sean here. I want to take a moment and plug Don't Show My Face, a new podcast created by James Reed, an American podcast producer living in Frankfurt, Germany. The show is a space where people who don't want their picture to be taken can nonetheless open up and tell some true stories. SRB listeners might be particularly interested in James's series, The Big Mistake, an eight-part series about how Germany got addicted to Russian natural gas. James tracked down several sources who worked in Germany's gas industry to speak to Don't Show My Face to tell their side of the story. This includes Alex Fack, a guy who was fired from Sperrbank in, in 2018 after a report he wrote about corruption in the Russian gas industry was leaked to the press. There is also an entire episode about Boris Nemtsov, the opposition polit- politician who was murdered just near the Kremlin in 2015. There's also more in this series. So so if you're interested in hearing Don't Show My Face, you can listen to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. The episodes are free, but there's bonus content if you become a subscriber. So make sure you follow Don't Show My Face wherever you get your podcasts. Well, so far we've been talking about ethnicity and nationality, but you know, as as you state and many other scholars on on national pol- nationality policy in the Soviet Union is this strange uh, phenomenon. Well, maybe it's not so strange, but you know, the fact that nationality became increasingly racialized. I mean, you're also you're pointing to this already in the sense of this primordialism. Like, if you look, say, Central Asian, and you have a, a Russian passport Passport identity there raises a bunch of questions. Um, so, how do you understand this this problem of nationality and race in the Soviet context?
0: Yeah, I, you know, one of the things I wanted to do in this book, in addition to talking to a bunch of people through oral history and finding out about their experiences, I also wanted to trace these, these ideas of nationality and race specifically as they pertain to uh, intermarriage. Um, and I, in the first chapter of the book, I I do that in some detail, you know, I kind of trace ideas about intermarriage and nationality starting in, well, late imperial period through the early Soviet period and then into the the late Soviet period, because I was really interested in knowing how uh, it seemed fairly clear from my conversations with people that, and from reading other scholars, that there had been this primordialization or biologization or racialization, whatever we want to call it, of national identities in the Soviet Union, I kind of wanted to know why and how this happened. So I did look at the work of a lot of scholars to try to trace this because in the 20s and in the 30s the Soviets explicitly rejected race as a category. In fact, they they pretty much always rejected race as a category, you know. So but 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 in the in the 20s and 30s they they rejected, you know, the I- ideas that were very common in Europe and the U.S. then of eugenics and, you know, and, 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 and racial hierarchies and so forth. And they they became an outlier and said, you know, we don't agree with these ideas. You know, we think all nations are equal. Nations are not racial. You know, uh, they are cultural and historical entities. You know, they had kind of a Marxist approach. A nation was a historical formation, you know, that had developed over time, it was characteristic of capitalism, you know, and, and it was not so it was not a, you know, uh, some primordial or, uh, you know, biological biologically determined thing. So, uh, so in the early Soviet period, there was not a primordial, uh, or racial notion of identity, but Starting in the 30s, you know, when Stalin began deporting ethnic groups just because they were of what of their ethnicity, right? <laughs> just because of who they were, uh, entire groups, including elderly people, babies, and so forth. Um, you started having a, a you know less of a cultural and historical view. There wasn't a total or immediate change, but there was sort of a gradual shift in which uh, nationality came to be seen as something innate. Something you were born with and couldn't change, uh, and um, and something you know singular where you could only have one of it, <laughs> which again doesn't make any sense if we know what we know about human mixing and so forth. The idea that people have only one, you know, nationality uh, is not really very sensible. But but they that's how uh, it started to be seen in the Soviet Union, and this process really accelerated in the post-war period when and in starting in the sixties, you had uh, this new concept of the ethnos. Uh, which was invented by Soviet ethnographers, not invented, revived by Soviet ethnographers. It's a Greek word, you know, that, you know, I mean, for, I guess, ethnic group, but but the ethnos to the Soviet ethnographers in the 60s, 70s, 80s, was something that had been around for millennia. You know, the ethnos was something permanent. It was not just a cultural and historical formation that could change and so forth. So, so there were, there was this shifting notion of Uh, what a nationality actually was. um, And over time, and one of the, uh, so I traced this in the scholarship. um, And then I also was very interested in seeing whether these ideas, these kind of racialized ideas about ethnicity and nationality were actually also reflected in the way ordinary people talked about, you know, their marriages and their identities and so forth.
1: Did religious confession also have an element of racializa- racialization as well? So, because one of the things I'm re- I was reading through some of your, you know, material on your interviews with people, and what struck me is that when you had a Muslim marrying a non-Muslim, this was, it, it kind of suggested a very immovable identity. Uh, they kind of had; it seemed to have shades of this primordialism that's attached to ethnicity.
0: Yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, because, uh, and of course religion is something that there really isn't any way you can see it as primordial or racial, right? People can convert to Islam. People can convert to Christianity. You do not have to be born. Uh, however, in the Soviet context, just as Judaism was seen as a nationality was seen as kind of an immutable, innate characteristic and not necessarily just as a religion. Um, uh, being Muslim also was, was seen as uh, being closely associated with one's nationality. And in fact, uh, um, uh, Adib Khalid. I don't know if you know his work, but he's, he's argued that, you know, that, uh, that, you know, Islam really became kind of a cultural identity when, when people in the Soviet Union Muslims weren't necessarily practicing very much, they weren't kind of, you know, they were more secularized uh, due to the Soviet anti-religious policies and so forth, but uh, being Muslim became kind of part of your cultural identity and even part of your national identity. So I think that's why you're picking up on that, you know, in the book as well, is that it did become associated with, like, if you were Kazakh, you were probably Muslim, you know? So there was this kind of, that that was one of your immutable characteristics of being Kazakh, was that not only did you have, you know, a certain name and, you know, black hair and dark eyes, but you were also, uh, you know, probably uh, probably a Muslim, so...
1: Now you you had this great opportunity to do oral history and interview people about their their life in in these mixed marriages and also children from mixed marriages. Is there is there a story that you encountered that just really stuck with you throughout the project and maybe had a, kind of served as the a prism of sorts to reflect on some of the material you were encountering?
0: That's interesting. You know, I had I encountered so many interesting stories. Uh, it's a little hard to pick. And and also, I did whole life histories of people, and so it's sort of hard to pick just one. Um, can I mention more than a couple? <laughs> okay, so okay. sure, of course. All I right.
1: mean, sure, you can do a you know a <laughs> <No>. combination <laughs> no. for all I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh,
0: so the you know one thing one thing that particularly struck me, um, and I think I begin one of the chapters with this was uh, um, that that I found several. I found you know. Two uh, two women, quite early in you know in my in my inter- oral history process, uh, who were uh, mixed. They had had Russian mothers and Central Asian fathers, who you know had intermarried obviously sometime earlier. You know in the thirties or forties. You know, and, and these young women, when they grew up, their parent their mothers had arranged marriages for them. Had had them marry men that they didn't know and uh and in 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 one case uh, you know the young woman was quite opposed to this marriage but her mother basically made her marry this person that you know they had picked through this arranged marriage and i just thought it was so fascinating that a russian woman who had gone to central asia had picked out her own husband there presumably you know this was not and uh, you know gone at the age of 18 to a for, you know a foreign republic met a man there gotten married that then she would not give the same freedom to her own daughter, you know, that, that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that that really struck me. And as I was starting to think about the gender aspects of, you know, of mixed marriages in Central Asia, that was something that I really, uh, that really, um, you know, that, that really struck me because, I mean, of course, you know, wouldn't any teenager, I'm a parent of a teenager, any teenager would say, but you married who you wanted, mom, <laughs> you know, why do I have to marry this guy, you know, so <laughs> why do I have to marry, you know, dad's, you know, Colleague's son, who I don't even know, you know. So, <laughs> just to create better ties between our two families, you know. So, uh, so that was one. And then, and then the other thing that I found kind of poignant was uh, there were several people I interviewed who said, um, at, you know, we haven't discussed this yet, but in the post-Soviet period, there's been a lot of opposition. Uh, to mixed marriage and this kind of favorable attitude from the Soviet era has not continued everywhere. And there, uh, uh, you know, the rise of nationalism has in some cases meant a obsession with national purity and, you know, pure, you know, keeping the purity of the, you know, the gene pool of your nation and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, so there, so mixed people are no longer viewed so favorably and mixed families in, in some post-Soviet republics. And I encountered several people who told me that, you know, they thought their, they thought their parents should not have done a mixed marriage that, you know, in other words, they were basically saying I should not exist. (laughs) You know, they, they, you know, my parents should not have married, should not have married interethnically. And if I had a kid today, I would advise them not to do this. So I, I found that kind of, I found that very sad and poignant because it's kind of people, it's almost like people negating their own existence, you know? And uh, so I would say those two things both struck me as kind of particularly interesting and, and in a way, um, you know, sad, maybe not, I don't know. I don't know if sad's the right word, but, you know. Um, it's
1: unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a tragic mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. result. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how did it work with foreigners? Because I, I've been doing lots of research about African-Americans and, and, you know, a lot of African-American men who stayed in the Soviet Union or even African students who stayed in the Soviet Union married, you know, locals. What? How did that, how did those mixed marriages come across and and especially when it's also with children.
0: You know, I didn't, um, I, I didn't, end up interviewing anybody who had married, uh, you know, a non-Soviet foreigner. Those were pretty rare. I mean, we talk about them a lot, you know, here, but it was like maybe 20 people. You know, in
1: the whole, yeah, it's, throughout it's the whole a very, Soviet. very small minority. <laughs> it's a very small <laughs> minority.
0: And so so I now, though, in the post-Soviet period, uh, lots of Central Asians are marrying, you know, foreigners uh, from all different countries. But, but uh, you know, most people, Central Asia was pretty um, isolated, in many ways, you know, people in Central Asia, for example, when I was in Turkmenistan the first time working on my dissertation research, um, most people told me they, you know, in the Soviet period, they never met a foreigner. They'd never met an American. They'd never met anyone from outside the Soviet Union. People couldn't travel there, you know? So it's not like Moscow, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, and um, so people didn't have as many opportunities to meet foreigners, let alone marry them, I would say, in Central Asia in the Soviet period. Of course there were some, I and mean, we know some stories of, um, you know, Uh, Yelena Kanga's family, you know, her parents met in Central Asia. But I would say those stories are few and far between. And I didn't really come across anyone like that. I I was looking specifically for couples who married in the Soviet period. And and it was, um, you know, primarily, um, uh, you know, different Soviet nationalities that I was looking at
1: was there a policy like did they have a policy for like how a child should identify themselves because i would imagine that you you know you have to pick something that's recognized on the nationality list <laughs> right yeah
0: yeah yeah it, it's interesting because uh there was some point you know and i i don't remember what year this was but uh uh at some uh, there was some point after the declaration of uh after the the adopting of internal passports in the 1930s uh, there was some point at which the soviet state actually made a declaration that you have to pick the identity of one of your two parents you can't just say my parents are both russian and i'm chinese you know or you know my you know my parents or even my parents are both uzbek and i'm russian you have to so there was there were some constraints you know you had to pick the nationality of of at least one of your parents. So, uh, but within that, I don't think there wasn't any effort to forcibly Russify mixed kids. They had, they had free choice, uh, from the point of view of the state, you know, uh, however, there were certain social expectations in Central Asia in particular, there was an expectation you would take your father's nationality if your father was Central Asian. So, uh, um, and so, but but this wasn't this wasn't in any way enforced. I know there was one one young one woman who told me you know her mother was Ukrainian, her father was Tatar, and when she went to register her nationality, she wasn't expecting the question. Her parents hadn't prepared her, you know. And uh, they said, and when they asked her, "What's your nationality?" she was like, "Oh my gosh, I don't know." Her name was Svetlana. She was blonde. She spoke Russian, and she was like, "I'm Russian, of course." And the guy in the passport office said, "Are you sure you're Russian?" You know, because she had a Tatar last name, right? So, and pa- and pat- patronymic. And she was like, "Of course I'm Russian. What else would I be?" And then when she went home and told her parents about this, they were kind of appalled, and they felt terrible that they hadn't like warned her. And, you know, so and her father said,
1: "Could you change yeah, it?"
0: Well. Theoretically, yes, but I think it was quite difficult once you had, you know, said yeah, that. I yeah, Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so her father said, maybe you should, should have said you were Tatar and, you know, but, but never, never, you know, did anything about it. So, so nobody, so this wasn't in any way kind of enforced that you had to be one nationality or another. So, but I think often kids often picked, in addition to picking the nationality of their fathers, they were often encouraged, as I think I already mentioned, to pick the titular nationality of a republic if they had that option. Um, and, uh, and for those, you know, there were a lot of people who intermarried in Central Asia who were, you know, there were not, they were, they were not from, uh, the titular nationality they were they were from smaller groups you know uh, and you know so for example if you have like a tatar marrying an armenian or a korean marrying a you know <laughs> with you know an ethnic german or you know there are all kinds of uh, mixed marriages like that where uh, basically everyone spoke russian because they were not in their home republics and russian was was the was the lingua franca and in those cases you know it seemed to be more of a grab bag what people selected they would try not to choose a stigmatized nationality so uh, so for example, German immediately after World War II was obviously not something that you wanted to pick. And also uh, you would try not to pick one of the deported nationalities. You know, there were Chechens and, you know, other deported nations in Central Asia. So, so you would try to maybe pick something more neutral <laughs> if you could, you know. Um, but anyway, it was a, yeah, complicated, complicated question.
1: So in reading and, you know, what do you want readers or, or listeners to this interview kind of take away in reading your book and the story that you're telling about interethnic marriage?
0: Yeah. Good, good question. Um, I think
1: like, what does it say about the Soviet system yeah, to you? First
0: of all, I, yeah, a couple of things. So first of all, the, 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 um, I think what it says about the Soviet system, the Soviet union is that even though in some ways the Soviet union was an outlier, Uh, in its, you know, nationality policy and its positive attitude toward mixed marriage and so forth. There were certain things that were very unusual and even unique uh, about the Soviet Union. Um, But it could not completely escape, you know, mixed kids, mixed families could not completely escape from the kinds of uh, challenges and issues that uh, they faced elsewhere. I think anyone who's from a mixed family... Um, would, you know, reading many of the stories of the people I tell, you know, anyone who was from a mixed family in the United States, you know, and my family's extremely mixed. Uh, you know, not only do I have Nigerian-Americans and African-Americans, I have Korean-Americans, Japanese-Americans, we have everybody in our family. And I think, you know, any anyone who has a f- mixed family would be able to identify with uh, a number of the stories that, that are told here, you know, so uh, about language, you know, especially if you're from an immigrant family in the United States, you know, trying to decide what, you know, whether to use English or teach your child, you know, your, your, your native language and so forth, these kinds, you know, there are many issues in this book that I think um, people in other countries, you know, would, would find familiar, you know, who are from mixed, mixed families. Uh, So there's that, but I guess, so I guess the takeaway there is that, you know, you know, there are other people who have argued that the Soviet Union was not, you know, this completely uh, sui generis, unique, you know, country, and and uh, that it does have aspects of kind of 20th century modernity that are recognizable everywhere. And I would say in some ways, you know, this book shows that, you know, that there, you know, there are these commonalities. Um, the second thing, though, that I would like to uh, people to take away is the, you know, the inescapability of race, You know, that even if you're living in a country that says we don't, we're not racist, we don't believe in race, we don't use the word race, you know, (laughs) and that makes, makes, that stakes its identity on being anti-racist and anti-colonial and so forth, uh, that race creeps in through the back door. It's so ubiquitous. in our you know understanding of the world of the you know and our understanding of humanity in the modern world that you know that it 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 crept back in in the Soviet Union and even though it's not as explicit as elsewhere you know race was not an official category people don't talk about race constantly but nevertheless it's there uh in uh in that people see identity as you know, kind of immutable, they see it as hereditary, they see hierarchies among different ethnicities. And so in various ways, there are kind of racial racialized ways of, of seeing nationality. So I think the inescapability of race is another thing that I would like people to, uh, to, um, to take away from it. Um, and then I guess the final thing, something that I mentioned in the conclusion of the book. So the kind of sad thing, Sad, sad part of my story is that this progressive, welcoming attitude toward mixed marriage uh, and equality of nations—it um, it went away uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, and a lot of these kind of hidden ideas about race and racism. They burst out into the open in the post-Soviet period, um, in many of the post-Soviet republics, and uh, you know xenophobic ideas of nationalism. I mean, I think we're all seeing this right now, right, with you know, you know, in Russia and Ukraine, uh, and so, uh, so. Uh, I, I guess, I, I guess, I guess, I guess my my the the point here that I would like people to take away is that you know um, progress toward, let's say racial and ethnic equality and justice and so forth is not linear. We can always go backwards, you know? <laughs> you know. And and in fact, when when I started writing this book, uh, Barack Obama was our president, and we were all kind of feeling good about you know the racial situation, kind of in the United States, you know. And uh, and then as I was finishing the book, of course, you know, we were already in a completely, you know, we already were in a completely different. Uh, as I was finishing the putting the finishing touches on the book, in fact, we were going through January sixth, the uh, you know insurrection and all of that, and so uh, so. Uh so I guess, it, so it was very, it was saddening for me to see that this, uh, this kind of relatively nice story of, you know, friendship of peoples and people being able to intermarry and have a normal life in the Soviet Union uh, was, has been, has kind of been lost. Not everywhere. In Kazakhstan, mixed people are still, you know, okay. They still have a kind of multi-ethnic Identity in Kazakhstan, but Tajikistan, not so much. And there are a lot of other republics where even people have talked about, you know, banning, you know, mixed marriage and so forth. So it's kind of a sad story from from that point of view. um, uh, In that, you know, these these kinds of uh, uh, this kind of uh, progress that we imagine, we imagine the, you know, arc of, uh, you know, now I'm going to forget the quote from Martin Luther King Jr. You know, the the, the arc of justice. I can't. Anyway, we somehow imagine that history is going to lead us in a direction that we all like or that, you know, we would prefer. And that doesn't always happen.
1: And how about for you? You know, you uh, are your family, as you've described, is a very mixed family in all sorts of ways. Did this book did doing this book, writing this book, give you some perspective on a different understanding of your own family life and personal history and identity? Uh,
0: That's a really, really interesting question. That is a that's a really interesting question. Uh mm-hmm.
1: I mean because I don't think it's I don't think it's actually that strange mm-hmm. that you decided to write a book about something that you personally experienced. Yeah, no no. <laughs> I mean you know, it, it, our lives inform our research, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. inevitably.
0: Yeah, I would say um that's funny, I haven't really thought about that. I've thought about how my experience informed my, my work on this book, but I haven't thought as much about how my work on this book has kind of come back you know, and, and informed, uh, informed my life. I guess uh, it, you know, it, it did make me aware that sometimes issues that uh, come up in families, you know, um, that they can, have, they can have roots that aren't always obvious, you know, they can they can be due to um, different assumptions, different understandings based on where someone grew up or what someone's background is. I mean, I certainly saw a lot of this in doing the research for my book. So I guess I suppose maybe um, it gave me more of an appreciation for being really uh, sensitive to, you know, my husband would probably disagree and say, no, you haven't become any more sensitive, but, you know, but, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know so try try trying to be trying to appreciate you know sort of cultural differences and sensitivities you know it's interesting because we have a lot of um in our family right now, I guess we're sort of the sandwich generation. We have young kids and we also have elderly parents. And, uh, you know, we have uh, uh, we have one set of elderly parents who are uh, Japanese Americans, one set of elderly parents who are Nigerian Americans, one se- set of elderly parents who are wasps, you know, my parents, <laughs> you know, and uh, and one set of elderly parents who are Korean Americans. And it's been really kind of interesting to see how everybody's relationship with their elderly parents kind of uh, you know, differs sort of based on, you know, where they're from, you know, the sort of assumptions everyone's starting from. And, uh, uh, and you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd say that my, you know, my work on my book has kind of helped me to understand this better. But certainly, I, you know, I saw many similar situations when I was doing my oral history research where, you know, uh, you know, people from one ethnicity had to try to understand, you know, why, uh, you know, why the (laughs) in-laws were behaving in a certain way, you know? So, so, so that's, um, so I, I hope it has made me a little more sensitive and understanding.
1: That was Adrian Edgar. Adrian Edgar is a professor of history at UC Santa Barbara, specializing in the Soviet Union and especially the history of Central Asia. Her first book, Tribal Nation, The Making of Soviet Turkmenistan was published by Princeton University Press. And her new book, Intermarriage and the Friendship of the Peoples, Ethnic Mixing in Soviet Central Asia, was published by Cornell University Press. So I'm all alone um, and I thought, you know, what to do about this section of the podcast that we introduced when I started to bring on interns and then Margaret and Rusana stayed on Um I thought of maybe ditching it, but I think I'll still give some brief comments uh, about the interview just because it gets me thinking. They'll be brief. So, uh, the first thing that really struck me was the Soviet Union as one of these outlier states that promoted interethnic marriage. But it presented quite a conundrum because even though it promoted in- interethnic marriage, it required the children of mixed marriages to declare one ethnic group or one nationality over the other. They had to pick one from their parents. And it was really surprising to me that though, you know, the problems of this were clearly well aware, um, the fact that there was a discussion, at least internally, and people wrote letters asking for it, a, a category of Soviet that would act as this supra-ethnic or supra-national identity that people could uh, identify with and claim as as a marker of their personal background, but they didn't do it. Um, and while I take Adrian's point about it might not have gone too well, and maybe would have disrupted a lot of things because people really identified with their nationality, I, I don't know. I wonder... Um, If it would have been that this disruptive and maybe over time, it would have just kind of became part of a natural identity and maybe not even contradictory, like I'm Soviet and also Kazakh or I'm Soviet and also Russian. Um, So that was really surprising that there wasn't a a Soviet category. Even a hyphenated category would have been better than having to pick one uh, nationality over another. The other thing that really struck me, and this goes to my personal interest in race. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners know that because I, I talk so much about it. But the inescapability of race as part of modernity, um, it, it strikes me every time. Um, I, I, maybe I shouldn't be confused or bewildered by this, but I find it such a interesting question. And particularly for the Soviet Union, you know, how and why ethnicity became racialized in the USSR. Now, there was never an official designation of a, let's say, Uzbek race, as we would, you know, call it, say, in the United States, but those ethnic characteristics, which, you know, in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and into the early 30s saw as mutable categories, as things people could shed or embrace or whatever. It wasn't necessarily connected to one's biology increasingly becomes connected to biology. Biology becomes, in many cases, destiny. So even if you have a, and this is, really comes out with children of mixed marriages where you could look a certain way and have markers of, or a self-identification with a, say, Russian, but look, say, quote, Kazakh. And this becomes problems for one's identity. So one of the things I'm really fascinated with, particularly in a place like Soviet Union, that tried to deny and argue against race and racism, how race, uh, nevertheless, kind of, as Adrian put it, sneaked back in through the back door and became one of these at least ways of speaking about ethnicity. And, and I, this is something that I've been interested in for a while, is, is how race became and continues to be a dominant form of categorization and identity in our modern times. So those are two things that really struck me. There are many more did, but I'll just leave it at that. So I I hope you find some value in those comments. As you know, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please take a moment, just a small moment to share it on social media. You can just hit the share button to either a Facebook post or a tweet from the podcast. It really helps out. You also tell your friends word of mouth for listening to podcasts is so much, so much more effective. I know if somebody tells me I got to listen to a podcast, I tend to listen to it. Also free, feel free to drop us a line, uh, let us know what you think, what you like about the podcast, even some of the issues we brought up in discussion. I'd like to hear how listeners uh you know interact with these ideas. And of course, as always, we'd love to have your support. The SRB podcast is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and that means that it rep- relies on support, support from listeners, support from other institutions to keep it completely free. And free from paid advertisements. So please help us keep it that way. So go to srbpodcast.org, find that Patreon button, and join the table of ranks. Until next time, bye.